Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, academic associate at the Sainsbury Institute, Daiwa scholar, and archaeology PhD student at the University of Cambridge, researching language and interpretation as Japanese war heritage sites. Today we are joined by Luke Eshington Brown, PhD in archaeology from the University of East Anglia, to discuss the role of archaeology in creating national histories. Luke's research looked at the work of William Gowland on coffin, imperial burial mounds, during Japan's industrial Meiji era, and so today we look at the relationship between the burial mounds of Japan's emperors and the narrative constructed at the time for the newly restored Meiji emperor. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good morning Luke, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, thank you for having me. So first off, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Uh, well, my background was in archaeology, and I'd always had an interest in uh, history and mythology. So since I was a child, I always had a broad interest in world archaeology and history. Uh, and I took up a master's, moved to London a few years ago now, at the School of Oriental and African Studies, just to study East Asian archaeology in general while I was working part-time. And I was very lucky to have met Simon Kainer and Nicole Romanier from the uh, Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures. And through that, I came aware of a PhD program at the British Museum. Could you tell us about the uh, research project for your PhD? So the research project was based on a team of Japanese archaeologists who had been visiting once or twice a year from Japan, led by Ichinose Kazuo from Kyoto Ichibana University. And they had been looking at the William Gowland collection, which although had received some study in the 90s and 80s, had been fully utilised. And I joined a little bit later, so, it's, so I think it's about 2012 uh, that my PhD started. That was quite a, a challenging process because the team had already been involved in working together for a few years by that point. And I was coming in quite late, and this was not only a very archaic archaeological collection to look at, but it had been part of the museum for about 100 years and had obviously changed slightly, been moved around apartments, changed in the way it was packaged, the way it was recorded, went from physical records to digital records. So it made it uh, a very steep learning curve in order to deal with that kind of information. While I was digging into it, uh, I realized I needed to focus on the historical aspect of it. And I had quite an interest in historical archaeology before that point, so that co-aligned with my main interest anyway. So I began looking at the documentary records, which there was a significant amount that hadn't really been properly organized. And I sorted through all of that, identified what the most important aspects of it were, and then set about transcribing and placing those in historical context. I see. So... As we're discussing this episode, Constructing National Histories, let's start off with a look at the relationship between history and nation building. So the historian Eric Hobsbawm famously wrote on how since 19th century, nations have invented traditions as part of a nation building process, laying foundations in historical authenticity. A recent example of this is the 19th century Meiji Restoration in Japan, where the Meiji Emperor was restored as head of state in Japan after centuries in the shadow of shogun military dictators. 
Could you unpack the nation building of Meiji era Japan for us? What histories and traditions are being invented to restore the emperor as the head of state? That's exactly right. So the Japanese emperors had given up a lot of their political power during the 12th century uh, when that was taken up by the shogunate system. And the shoguns held power right up until the end of the Meiji period where the Meiji emperor, as you say, takes back a lot of that political power. And during that time, this dual identity for the emperor has to be constructed by the Meiji government uh, because they're going from a very uh, traditional form of rulership to a much more modern form. But at the same time, they have to harken back to that very long lineage of the imperial line that goes right back to the foundation myths of Japan. So in a similar fashion as uh, a lot of Japanese industry is um, modernizing incredibly quickly, and that's why they, the Japanese government is hiring many of these foreign specialists um, from Europe and the Americas to come in and help them modernize industry, and which of Gal William Galland was one of them. He, he was a metallurgist who was employed by the Japan Mint in Osaka. Uh, the royalty in Japan, the imperial family, uh, went through a period of massive modernization and suddenly they were much more uh, public figures for the first time ever, whereas before it was uh, forbidden for commoners to look upon the emperor, suddenly they were, they were having uh, trips around Japan and meeting normal people. Uh, and they were wearing the dress of Western royalty. Uh, however, that traditional um, aspect of the imperial family relied very much on the early histories, the uh, Kojiki and Nihon Shoki, especially, which were written in the 8th century. Uh, the Kojiki was written in 712 AD and the Nihon Shoki in 720. And those described the foundation myths of Japan um, and the lineage of the imperial family going right back to uh, Amaterasu, the sun goddess, and the first mortal emperor, who was uh, Emperor Jimu, who was supposedly... Uh, created his kingdom of Yamato in the Nara Basin uh, in 660 BC. And obviously that would be during the uh, Yayoi period in reality. But the, so uh, this largely mythological, but um, that, that's the history that they were drawing on. Uh, and in, as part of that, uh, the imperial tombs began to be enshrined, uh, including uh, Jimu's tomb, which was actually just, uh, although it had been historically recorded as um, existing, uh, it, it was actually constructed by the Meiji government and then Shinto rituals were invented to take place there during uh, Nation Day, which is what, 17th of February, I think. See, so, uh around the time of the major restoration, we see archaeology becoming a fully-fledged academic field rather than something of a hobby. One leading archaeologist of the era was William Gowland, and we have the centenary of his passing coming up next week. By the end of his life, Gowland was renowned for a vast array of exquisitely detailed excavations, including Stonehenge, but he was also commissioned by the Meiji government. This was initially to teach metallurgy, but in his free time, he went on to survey over 400 coffin burial mounds, these imperial mausolea from the 3rd and 7th centuries. Why was this of such significance to the Meiji government? 
So as I was saying, there was this system taking place of imperial mounds being enshrined and protected. And that had actually begun much earlier. It was by the late 17th century, there'd been some complaints that the Edo government wasn't treating the imperial family properly. Uh, And so there was a survey of imperial tombs in 1697, and then the first repairs took place by 1699. And that continued in a fashion and then was taken up during the Meiji periods because of that phenomenon I was just discussing. Gowland did investigate several tombs that were imperial tombs, and he was actually uh, shooed away from a few of them because of police. So what sort of things was he excavating that were of interest to this construction of the Meiji government? Most of the tombs he visited, he either just visited them and described their location, or he surveyed them. He really only excavated one tomb, which was Shiba Yamakofen in Osaka, Uh, That wasn't so much an imperial tomb, it had actually been investigated by some police about 10 years before Gowland excavated in 1887, and it was deemed not to be an imperial tomb or particularly important, so it was just left as it was. So to the Meiji government, it wasn't actually terribly important. At the beginning of the Meiji period, there weren't really any laws that protected archaeological sites. There was a man called Machida Hisanari, who had been one of the Satsuma students who had, uh, at the end of the Edo period, had been sent to Europe to learn about modern academia and bringing it back to Japan. And he had made a plea in 1871 to the Meiji government in order to try and protect Japan's cultural assets. And that might have been partly because he'd been to European museums and seen cultural assets from other countries in those museums clearly taken from their country's origin. And that's created the Jinshin Survey, which happened in 1873, which was an attempt to start recording these kind of cultural assets. So uh, that included a large survey of the Shosuin, the imperial treasure house in Nara, which is often considered to be sort of the end of the Silk Road. It holds a lot of very important material from about the 7th century, including imported materials from much further afield. Because of that, there was a law called the Provincial Reports on the Discovery of Ancient Tombs that was enacted in 1873, so the same year as the Jinshin Survey. But that really only attempted to identify and locate imperial tombs. So like the Shiba Yamakofen, two policemen were sent to it in the 1870s, but it was only to check if it was an imperial tomb. And because it wasn't, it was just left a landowner. And then 1887, Gowland could go there and excavate it because it had already been written off as not important. So to the Meiji government, archaeological sites like Kofen weren't important unless they were part of constructing that dual identity for the emperor. I see. Can I ask why police were so involved in? these uh, surveys of burial mounds? <laughs> With Gowland, it tended to be if it was an imperial tomb, and uh, Gowland seems to, at least according to him, he seems to have um, made quite a reputation for himself, so it seems as if when he went somewhere to view one of these tombs, if it was possibly an imperial tomb or was an imperial tomb, then uh, sometimes he said that uh, policemen would actually be stationed on it. But also it just appears that <laughs> Generally, uh, Japanese people were a little bit defensive about foreigners showing an interest in ancient tombs in their <laughs> local area. <laughs> so you assume that there's a bit of a troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it did seem that way. <laughs> right. 
Now, as archaeologists, we can't be overly cynical about the role of early archaeology in nation building. Gowland's amateur excavations were of such a high standard, he was termed the father of Japanese archaeology. And we enjoy the fruits of his labours even today, looking at artefacts he uncovered without the nationalist lens of the time. With this in mind, do you think the relationship between archaeology and nation building is a fruitful one or a harmful one from an academic perspective? Well, that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first, I'd say that Gellman being the father of Japanese archaeology might be a bit of an overstatement. No. Uh, he is certainly important and I think maybe more important to the development of archaeology in general than we tend to give him credit for. But due to some issues with how dates were recorded previously with the Gowland collection. It was really the excavation of Shibiyama Kofun was what was considered his first excavation. That was in 1887, and that was actually slightly after Suboi Shogoro, who's Japan's first archaeologist, had excavated Ashikaga Kofun in Tochigi Prefecture in 1886. So it's a difficult thing to talk about, but um, you can't really consider Gowland to be the father of Japanese archaeology. So can I just like loop back to the question of the relationship between archaeology and nation building? Mm. Do you think it's a fruitful one or a harmful one from an academic point of view? I think generally it would be more harmful than it is productive just because it tends to cause people to project their own sense of identity onto the past, which isn't always a bad thing, but it can uh, colour interpretation and it's always the best practice for an archaeologist to try and be as unbiased as possible, even though obviously we, we all have some bias that we bring to archaeological interpretation. But it, it helps without those kinds of barriers. Mm. But it must be difficult to be literally digging into the past of a nation completely objectively. Mm. After all, the funding will come from bodies like national heritage bodies, which are interested in promoting their own nation's cultural heritage. So is it really possible to be completely unbiased? Well, to be completely unbiased, I don't think it is possible. <laughs> you, you try your best. But like, as you say, there's always going to be some bias, whether it's from funding or from your own cultural background. And it, it would be just, it would be a little arrogant to assume that you were bias-free at any point. Sure, but it's what we should strive to do. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And now you've worked with Gowland's collection at the British Museum in the past. So what does bring a 21st century approach, a reveal from his surveys of the Coffin Book Burial Mounds? That's a good question. I just, it certainly expands our understanding of the development of archaeology and the early networks that existed between Japan and Britain. It's something that definitely came out of it. And we know far more about the history of not just of my work, but from the, um, the survey team who I worked with uncovered a huge amount of information on that collection. It's also sounds like it was difficult to do any kind of surveys of imperial burial mounds in Gowland's time, but mm. nowadays it is next to impossible to do anything around imperial <laughs> properties. So surely that must provide more insight than we're able to get today. Uh, there was some information, because Gowland was there just as some of these imperial mounds were being interred as imperial or were protected and shrined. So he was able to collect some information that a lot of archaeologists weren't able to replicate until relatively recently. And some of his surveying has shown to be about as good as LIDAR 
measurements. In modern day, it is getting a little easier. The Imperial Household Agency is getting a little more open to the idea of archaeologists under quite strict observation, having some investigation of Imperial mounds. See, so to shift this conversation into a modern context, uh, do you believe the role of archaeology in national histories and identities is as strong now as it was in Gowland's time? Even in Gowland's time, I'm not sure if it was entirely held by people in general. Gowland was part of the Asiatic Society of Japan with people like Ernest Sato. And Ernest Sato was recorded as saying that he had spoken to a lot of Japanese people in important positions who had absolutely no problem with denying that Jimu had never existed or that the emperors weren't related to the sun goddess, but they had to keep that up in public because it was expected of them. Mm-hmm. But they, in private, they would have absolutely no problem with foreign books that denied that kind of thing. So I, I think even at the time, although it was stressed by the government, it wasn't necessarily believed by most Japanese people, especially more educated Japanese people. Interesting. I mean, I think there's definitely a faction in Japan that strongly believes in yes. the uh, imperial lineage going back two and a half thousand years. So uh, <laughs> we could just say that there are people who believe it more now than, than back in the 19th century. I wouldn't say more now, no, but I know there's, yeah, you'll always find those sorts of people in any country, but uh, mm. Uh, it's, it's not really my area, I'm afraid. Sure, we're, we're verging into theology more than <laughs> archaeology, so that's, that's, that's totally fine. Well, thank you for answering my questions, Luke. Before we finish the episode, can you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? So I've been involved with an exhibition that's being put on at the Stonehenge Exhibition Centre that's comparing Stonehenge and Japanese archaeological materials. It includes a little bit about... William Gowland, and yeah, because he was the first person to excavate Stonehenge in 1901. And he was also the first person to accurately date the trilithons to the Neolithic period, which was partly because it was very good excavation. And that excavation was quite largely informed by his work in Japan. So I, I think that's something that has been quite interesting and fruitful to look into. Great. Well, thanks for joining me again, Luke. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You can find a link to Luke's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japanandnorwich.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. You can also get in touch to recommend the topics to the podcast at o.moxum at sainsbury-institute.org. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Susan Furukawa, Associate Professor of Modern Languages and Literatures at Spelloit College to discuss history and fiction through works on the iconic and problematic life of 16th century shogun Toitomi Hideyoshi. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>